0: Let me just, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me. Um, this is, I think, the second time I've been able to uh, preach here on a Sunday morning. My, my family had the privilege of vacationing in your city earlier this year. And um, I, I do have to travel a bit with, with serving various churches. And, but this is one of the cities where, I, I, I was telling the guys, my, my children, I think, are a bit envious when they find out I'm coming here. They're like, well, how, well can we... Go with you or like what's... I think they they love your city and they also love you. Um, One of the things that they said after meeting you when we were here earlier in the spring was, man... the, the, these, these churches are all so friendly. This is fantastic. They, they just felt so warmly welcome. So I want to greet you on behalf of my my children. And also on behalf of our family of churches. Um, I love visiting Sovereign Grace churches because it's a bit like representing an extended family. And so you get to send greetings from grandpa and grandma and aunts and uncles at various places around the world. Um, we just returned. I know a number of your pastors were there as well uh, from the Sovereign Grace Pastors Conference, uh, which was a gathering of pastors and wives and leaders from around the world. And it was a delightful time, partially just seeing uh, the family get to be all together. Um, I want to say there was 24 countries represented there, and one of the things that we so enjoyed was opening the conference. A number of those languages were represented in a reading, in their own tongue, uh, the Word of God. And so just on behalf of all of those churches from around the world, and, and also from my own church In Austin and our region in Texas. Um, I I just want to greet you and express our love for you and the joy we have of of partnering together. Um, I I also want to say uh, what a joy I've had uh, over the months of getting to know and become friends with your pastors. Um, I'm very grateful for that friendship. I've found these men to be very personally encouraging to me. I was actually talking with with Peter uh, before the conference and, and was telling him the message I was going to be preaching. And, and he committed to pray for me, as you know he would. And I, I just have found these men, Keith and Frank and Steve and Phil and, and, and the other members of the staff as well, just to be so personally encouraging to me. And I know they do that on your behalf, so I just want to express my gratefulness as well. Um, well, this morning... Um, I, I know there's this meeting afterwards. I agree with Keith. I, I, my prayer has been that God's word would be the highlight of our day. Uh, and so if you, would open, if you would open your Bibles to Acts chapter 16, um, this was a message I actually preached to my own church last Sunday, and it was a conclusion of a series we did, a brief survey series in the book of Acts. Um, but I love Acts chapter 16, and I, I can't wait to read it with you. And before we read, what we do in my church is I just remind us that we're about to read God's word, that it comes to us unlike any other news source, unlike any other piece of information, it comes to us with authority and with power to transform us, to illuminate the glory of God, to illuminate our own hearts. And so let's, let's come to this word with that expectation. I'm going to be reading from verse 11 all the way through to the end of the chapter. So it's a bit of a long read, but, I, but it's an exciting read. So let's... Remember, this is God's word beginning in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. When it was day, the magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. The jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison, and now they want to throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison. And visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Lord, bless the preaching and the believing of your word. I want to read to you some advice from Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon visits our church regularly. I'm sure he visits here regularly, too. Uh, I want to read some advice from him that I think is is very relevant to our interpretation of this passage. And more importantly, uh, in the application of this passage in our own lives. Spurgeon says this. Even the holiest of Christians and those who understand best the gospel of Christ find in themselves... A constant inclination to look to the power of the creature instead of looking to the power of God and God alone. Even the best, even the best Christians, even those who best understand the gospel, find in themselves an inclination. It's an instinct, it's a reaction to assess situations based on their own power or someone else's power, that's a human being, to, to base their assessment of a situation on creaturely power rather than looking to God and God alone. Now, we have to ask the question, what about us? If even the best Christians do that, then surely all of us do that as well. William Carey, the famous missionary, said we're to expect great things and attempt great things. But, but those two truths go together. Those who expect great things are those who will attempt great things. Because they expect great things from the power of God, they're willing to attempt things with faith in God's power. What about us? When we face moments in life, either quiet moments or loud moments, and this passage addresses both, do we assess them based on the power of the creature? Do we assess our own ability and that's what creates our expectations for the moment? Or or are our eyes raised to the power of our God, the power of our God, especially in bringing progress to his gospel? Too often, we shrink our expectations of Christianity to those things that make sense based on our own power and wisdom. We spend our days measuring what do I think I can carry? How do I think I can handle this? How do we think we'll get through this particular situation? And sometimes we're unwilling, because of that, to attempt to endure or believe for things that require faith. So Christianity becomes a predictable, plannable, commonplace journey. Predictable, plannable Commonplace journey. So we need powerful reminders that our expectations are to be based on the power of God. Well, Acts 16 and Paul's journey to Philippi is one of those reminders. It's like a a shot of adrenaline to a, a weak and limited Christian heartbeat. It's like epinephrine for the Christian soul that is declining. And basing life on their own power and needs to be juiced up by sight of the power of God. Well, the story of Philippi is one of those stories. Now, let's read it. The story basically basically breaks down into two kinds of power. And the first is power displayed in a calm conversation. A calm conversation. Notice in verse 11 that Paul is going through his church planning journey. He finds his way to Philippi, a leading city. And on the Sabbath, as was his practice, he goes to find those who are either converts to Judaism or Jews themselves living in the city. Perhaps there was no synagogue in Philippi. So he thinks, well, perhaps they gather outside the city close to a river. So he makes his way there. I just want to make a a quick point the, the great apostle Paul is not above and beyond just using common sense logic about what to do next. I love that in this passage. He comes to Philippi, he's trying to plan the church, he goes to find the Jews because the gospel is to go to the Jews first, but then he says, Well, I, I can't find any. Well, what do we do next? Well, I guess we'll go to the river. Maybe they're there. And doesn't that sound like us? It's just common sense. Well, I don't know, Silas, let's go out in the river, see if we can find some people who might be open to talking to. It's just common sense, taking the next step. Not every moment in the moment is some kind of supernatural, explosive moment. It's just a calm Moment of taking the next step and going to the river. Then he goes to the river. He finds these women there who were probably Jews or proselytes. They are God fears, but they only know the way of the Old Testament. Most likely they have not heard about Jesus. So it says, We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. Now, I love. The calmness of this moment, especially where the chapter goes after this. I love the calmness of this. It's just Paul and Silas talking with a group of ladies. Probably some of them are doing laundry. They're praying. And he says, Can I talk to you about Jesus, a Jewish carpenter who proclaimed himself to be the Son of God, who was crucified, who rose from the dead? I, I loved it. And I'm sure he wasn't talking like this. He just said, I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. It's a calm conversation. How many moments in our life are like this? Most moments in our life are like this. They are calm conversations, calm conversations. How often do mothers share the gospel again with their children just around the breakfast table? And the danger is in those moments, we assume that nothing extraordinary can happen. And we assume that partially because sometimes nothing extraordinary does happen. This passage is not meant to be a promise that every time you have a calm conversation and you insert Jesus into it, something extraordinary will be seen. That is not the point I'm making. It's not the point of the passage. But here is the point. Something extraordinary can happen. And sometimes because it doesn't always happen, we assume it will Never happen, and so we have a calm conversation expecting nothing, looking to the power of the creature. We do it out of a sense of duty and responsibility, and this is what's right, but we don't actually expect that this can happen. How many calm conversations are attended with zero faith? But this is a calm conversation. It's just a calm conversation about Jesus. How often do children's ministry workers share the next story in the curriculum, assuming that little will be different this week? We're doing this because this is what we have to do. How often do pastors preach a sermon with little confidence that conversions could take place? How often do co-workers share about their faith? out of a sense of duty and obligation or invite someone to church with little faith or expectation that anything will be different tomorrow than it is today. So we need this story to remind ourselves that though he doesn't promise to do it every moment, there are moments where God's miraculous power works in calm conversations. Conversations across the driveway with that wayward adult child who's heard this 9,000 times. But God can use the next calm conversation to be like this moment. Conversations at the local basketball game, or when the kids are doing their youth sports thing, or when the neighbor needs help clearing his driveway, or whenever the calm moment comes for you. Here's a moment in God's word to remind us, God, doesn't just work with earthquakes. He works with calm conversations preceded by common sense initiative from his people. Calm conversations because notice, notice what happened. We need, we need the end of verse 14. Here's this woman. Far from her hometown in Thyatira, in the providence of God, she happens to be sitting on a riverside, talking to fellow ladies, and who should come but the Apostle Paul. In the providence of God, he shares with her about the gospel, and notice what God does. The Lord opened her heart. We need Lydia faith for the calm conversations in our life. You need it and I need it. We need it for the next conversation with that child, with that adult kid, with that aging parent, with that neighbor, with that co-worker, with that person that we assume. I could talk to them. Nothing would be different tomorrow. Well, it was for Lydia. She started the day wandering to the river, assuming all she could know about God was pre-Jesus. Then she met Jesus through the conversation with Paul, the Lord Open her heart. She is baptized. Her household believes they are baptized. She becomes a patron of the gospel because Paul has a calm conversation with her. We must not assess our life based on the power of the creature. Now, thankfully, God doesn't just move in calm conversations because sometimes life is loud. And so we also need to be encouraged that he moves with astonishing force. He moves with astonishing force. Force After this initial success, you notice in verse 16, Paul and Silas return to the place of prayer. Probably would have been their regular practice to provide Christian teaching to those who had responded. And they are met by a slave girl who is possessed by a demon who gives her some sort of supernatural secrets that her owners have turned into a fortune-telling business. Now, this demon, I'm sure quite maliciously, And antagonistically, decides to become a kind of town crier for Paul. So he shouts perpetually what is true, that these men are servants of the Most High God and they proclaim to you the way of salvation. Apparently, the demon through the girl does this for multiple days. So that everywhere Paul goes, this demon is shouting before him. These men are servants of the Most High God. Then it says Paul is annoyed because neither Paul nor the book of Acts in general has any interest in disingenuous witness. You can see that in previous passages as well. There's no interest in somebody who just says the words without actual belief in their heart. God doesn't need that kind of help. So Paul decides he's had enough from this demon... He turns and rebukes the demon and demands that it leave the girl. And the demon, hearing the authority of Christ in Paul's voice, obeys. And the gospel starts to make some noise in Philippi. So now the power of Christ has been revealed to be greater than the power of this demon, but the owners, you notice in verse 19, whose only concern that their profit of gain, their hope of gain was gone, they seize Paul and Silas and drag them before the rulers of the city. They level a consistent in Acts false accusation against Paul, And this is a consistent accusation you can see in Acts. It's one of the frequent troubles of the church through the centuries, that they are accused of being social uprisers, political agitators, which in one sense is true because they are proclaiming the kingship of Christ in a way that is going to radically change people's lives. But in another sense, it is totally false Because the church is not and has never been a political, social movement. So they're taking advantage of this language of kingship and surrender and following Christ the Messiah. And rejecting the false gods of the culture. And they're interpreting it as if it is a political, social, physical movement. Which is a false charge. But the mob buys it and it turns into a chaotic, disastrous moment, you would think, for Paul and Silas. They begin to be beaten, it says. The crowd attacks them in verse 22. The magistrates themselves, try to imagine this moment. The rulers of the city rip the clothes off of Paul and Silas and order that they are beaten with rods, a merciless Roman punishment. Paul, in the book of 1 Thessalonians, describes this event by saying, we were shamefully treated in Philippi. There's... there's a transition here from a, a quiet moment, apparently multiple days of quiet ministry by the riverside. In a moment, they are stripped and bloody before the entire city. And even the rulers are cheering on the crowd to wound them, beat them, destroy them, cast them in jail. And they are treated not just as ordinary criminals. It's as though there's some sort of flight risk. They're placed in the inner part of the prison, their feet are placed in stocks. So the idea that these are political agitators deserving of the most severe treatment is now the reputation that the gospel has in Philippi. Now, that kind of moment introduces a question. Will They assess this moment based on the power of the creature. Will they? Will they see the opposition, the obstacles, the relatively meager fruit produced so far at that river? And and will they assume this is a disaster for our gospel progress? We we had hoped to keep going to towns beyond this. N- now we're in jail. Who's to say how long this prison sentence will last? We, we find elsewhere in Acts, Paul could be in prison for multiple years at a time. He doesn't know right now whether that is what the outcome will be, that he could be in prison for a great length of time, that all of his preaching efforts will be immediately restricted to a jail sale like they were later in Rome. As far as he knows, his physical capabilities have been reduced to what he can do with his voice in the stocks of an inner prison in Philippi. Will he assess this moment based on the power of the creature? Now, brothers and sisters, I would submit. We would be discouraged with a far less severe trial. We go into obstacles like traffic and think, well, clearly nothing good can happen today. (laughs) We have a conflict with somebody in our family, we think, well, clearly no good fruit's happening in this family. We lose an argument and our faith takes a nosedive. What's been wrong with you the last two days? Well, we had that argument. I've been discouraged. Somebody disappointments, disappoints us in some way. We think, well, that's, that's well, that's the end. That's the end of everything, I guess. There's nothing good can happen. Whole holiday season. I was, I was talking to somebody recently, and, and they were confessing that, yeah, you know, I realized I was disappointed in this one moment, and it tempted me the remainder of the time, the rest of the time I was discouraged because I was disappointed in this one moment. How like all of us whether it's opposition or our own weakness or somebody else's weakness or confusing circumstances, we come to moments like this. What do we do? We assess them based on the power of the creature. My AC is out. Therefore, my entire future financially is in question. (laughs) My car broke down. We will never get ahead. And God has abandoned us. My child was angry yesterday. All of my efforts at raising them was a waste. (laughs) I've been talking to that person for years. I've never seen any progress. Why go back? We assess things based on the power of the creature. We're not wrong. If it was up to our power, all of those situations would be exactly as discouraging and hopeless as we tend to think they are. It's not like we're crazy. Most of those moments were like, I I actually don't have any power to change this. We're not making it up. Half the time, optimists are usually inaccurate. It really is worse than you think. if we base it on the power of the creature. But not Paul and Barnabas. Without knowing, notice this, without knowing what's coming, before they know what's coming, before they get the good news, before they know how God will move, or when God will move, or whether He will choose to leave them there for a long time. Before that, they assess the situation how? Based on the power of their God. Look down there at verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas, remember, bruised and bleeding and in stalks. Now, I've never tried to sleep in stalks, I imagine it's very difficult. To sleep and to be comfortable at all in stocks in a prison. I don't imagine there were nice prisons in Philippi. This is very uncomfortable situation with no certainty about the outcome. Notice what they're doing. They are praying and singing hymns to God. They are praying. It says the prisoners were listening to them. No wonder. I imagine this was the only singing that ever took place in this corner of the world. I imagine these prisoners, petty thieves, people that had uh, committed all kinds of crimes in Philippi were there for good reason, are thinking, "This, this is extraordinary. They're praying, they're singing while bleeding. Why? Because their eye was set on the unstoppable power of God. They're doing what Paul will go on to write to this church. All I know is that I want to glorify God, whether by life or by death. (laughs) I, I don't care what happens to me. I don't even care if jealous other preachers are preaching and I don't get to preach. I don't care about any of that. My heart is set on Christ. On the power of God, on the greatness of God. So they're singing. They're singing, and in the providence of God, God decides to display his power with astonishing force immediately in this situation. He doesn't always do that, but he always can. And he displays it with immediate force. Suddenly, in verse 26, there was a great earthquake interrupting their hymn so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And notice what God does. It begins the reversal of this passage, if if you know Acts at all, you know Acts is always reversing who apparently has power to reveal who actually has power. So in some moments it feels like all of the power is in one side and then God will reveal. Well, not actually, because you weren't counting on an earthquake. So then earthquake breaks open the prison. Everyone, apparently, not just Paul and Silas, everyone bonds were unfastened. The jailer wakes up and sees that the prison door would open and he's about to kill himself. Now, that's not that surprising because in those days, if you were a jailer and you allowed your prisoner to escape, you could expect to receive their same sentence. That's part of the expectation. So who knows who was in that jail? He sees all the doors open. He thinks, well, I'm I'm responsible for everybody that got out. My life is forfeit. I have utterly failed. And then notice... The shock. Paul cries out to the jailer with a loud voice. Don't harm yourself. We are all here. Now that is extraordinary. Apparently, Paul had gained such stature that the rest of the prisoners were more afraid of his God than of remaining in jail. So when Paul somehow convinced them all, nobody leave, they obeyed him. Now, I don't know a lot about jails, but I think that's got to be the first time in history that ever happened. That some random prisoner is singing to his God. There's an earthquake and the prisoners think, well, I don't know anything about Paul, but whoever he is, he is in touch with God. I'm not messing with him. I'm staying right here because he told me to. So Paul actually saves the life of his enemy, the jailer. He says, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer having been previously worried about physical and political consequences, is now overwhelmed with the fear of God, and he comes trembling before Paul and Silas. Now, only the power of God could do that. Who in that city would imagine a hardened jailer falling before a Jewish teacher? Nobody. Nobody. That is impossible according to the power of the creature. But very possible according to the power of God. So the jailer asks them, what must I do to be saved? They seize that moment once again to preach the gospel, believe on the Lord Jesus, the Lord who was crucified, Who died on a Roman cross in shame, but was raised to glory by God's power. Who is the Messiah? Who is the judge of the living and the dead? Who is the one true God? If you believe in him, you will be saved. And the jailer believes their message. He confesses Christ. He and his entire household are baptized. And then he turns into a patron of the gospel as well. He cares for Paul. He washes their wounds. He brings them to the house. And notice he rejoices along with his entire household that he had believed in God. But God's reversal of the situation is not done. The next day, the magistrates, not wanting any more trouble, decide to quietly release them. But Paul chooses this moment. To show just how powerful God's reverse has been, He chooses this moment to say, No, actually, you did something illegal by beating us without a trial. We're Roman citizens and putting us in jail. Why don't you come and let us out? And Luke, the writer of Acts, this master storyteller, reveals the complete reversal. The magistrates who yesterday had all the power were physically beating them without any fear of consequences, have to come and issue a public apology, have to quietly request that they leave their city and not cause any more trouble. The point is, who has the real power in this situation? Those who appeared to have the power? Or the God who ultimately triumphed over them. What's what's the application for us? Don't assess moments based on the power. The apparent power of the creature. Whether our own or our enemies. Assess it based on the power of God. Listen again to our friend Charles Spurgeon. It's a long quote but it's worth it. He says, Servants of Jesus Christ. Never be discouraged when you are opposed, but when things run counter to your wishes, expect that the Lord has provided some better thing for you. Paul and Silas must go to prison. Listen to this. Because a chosen person was to be converted in the prison who could not otherwise have been reached. Nay, it was not only one person who was to be saved, but eternal love had fixed its eye upon a whole house. And therefore into prison they must go to do more by night in their bonds than they could have done by day if they had been free to bring to Christ some that would be more illustrious trophies of the grace of God than any they could have gathered had they been preaching in the streets of Philippi. God knows where it is best For his servants to be, and how it is best for them to be, if he foresees that they will do more good with their backs scarred than they would have done if they had escaped the flagellation, then their bodies must bear the marks of the Lord Jesus, and they must rejoice to have it so. Divine love had set its eye on an entire household and had conceived in perfect wisdom that the best means for that household to be converted to the maximum glory of God required that Paul and Silas experience overwhelming weakness for a moment so that they could be the means of displaying God's superior wisdom and power. What about us? When we experience moments of unexpected weakness and vulnerability and mystery and the opposition of the enemies of the gospel and difficulties with our own souls and with others, what do we do in that moment? Well, what we should do is remember Acts 16. We don't know how God is going to display His power, but we know that throughout the Scriptures... From a shepherd boy with a sling to a crucified Savior on a cross, God has chosen to use the weakness of his servants as the prelude to his display of power. So when we experience our own weakness, sins, conflicts, opposition, social pressures, physical problems, you name whatever the weakness is, We must, to be faithful, say, along with Spurgeon, divine love has his eye on some good that cannot be accomplished any better way than this. And if we must endure some season of weakness, vulnerability, pain, so that God's power can be displayed for the progress of his gospel, whether we see it in this life or not, We can lay claim on this promise. Your love has your eye on some gospel harvest... And if I have to bear some marks of weakness in this brief and temporary time, this light and momentary time, I know it is preparing for me an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison when my endurance of some moment of weakness will be revealed to be the platform of God's unstoppable power. So I can endure and you can endure some moment, individual, corporate, national, social, some moment of weakness and vulnerability and uncertainty and mystery, knowing divine love has his eye on some gospel progress and we have the privilege of being some small part in it so that Paul could write later, I thank God for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now to this church. We have the book of Philippians because Paul went to jail. What will God do in the future through your weakness? Seized by faith with an assessment of God's power instead of assessing it based on our own vulnerability. God does not always explain the outcomes of things. He does not always provide immediate earthquake responses, but he is the same God of Philippi. We need the faith of Lydia and the jailers moment. We need that faith. And I I can imagine our sister and our brother as if they were here this morning calling to us. Lydia saying perhaps, don't doubt what God can do in your calm moments this week. Don't doubt, brothers and sisters. I didn't start the day knowing Jesus, but I ended knowing him. Don't doubt. Can't you hear the jailer saying, oh, oh, don't doubt what God can do in impossible circumstances. I don't know when he'll do it or how he'll do it, but it's the same God. I started that day with all the power and I ended on my knees. Washing the wounds of my former enemies. Don't you dare doubt what God can do with his unstoppable power. Don't don't you hear their voices echoing through this passage? We believe in the same God as Lydia and the jailer and Paul and Silas. This book is given to us not just for a good for them clap, but for a ongoing assessment of faith. Where do you feel weak right now? Where do you feel vulnerable? Vulnerable. Where might you feel vulnerable in the future? God is able to use quiet moments and loud moments for the display of his power and the progress of his gospel. This, this is our privilege to not assess things based on our own power. Let me close with just an an illustration to kind of put one more reminder of this. I I was imagining a scenario where... A mother says to her son, son, the leaves are piled up all over our back patio and we have company coming over. Could you please go blow them off? Yes, mom. So he heads outside and an hour later, his mother decides to check on him. So she goes outside and she finds her dear son on his knees, blowing one leaf at a time off of the patio. And he looks at her with a great degree of genuine effort and discouragement and says, I don't think I can do this. I've tried, but they keep falling. And every time I blow one off, another one falls. And sometimes there's two at a time. I, I, I'm not making any progress. And She says, son, use this. It's called a leaf Blower. It's much stronger than you. Brothers and sisters, don't we come to moments of our life that we have a task, we have a job, we have a calling, but we look at it and say, I can't possibly do this. The moment I make a little progress, something else happens and sets me back. Everything I do, something worse happens. I'm just... Back and forth, blowing leaves off a porch. God's given me an impossible task. Yes, in your strength. But you have access to a God of unlimited power. And you must go about the task, though it might be confusing and daunting and his mystery will be involved, but accessing and depending on and leaning into his power that is displayed throughout his Bible. God has called us to impossible tasks intentionally so that we must depend on his power alone. God has called us to impossible tasks intentionally so that we must depend On his power alone. Let's assess our life. Based on the God of Lydia. And the jailer. And believe that God. Can accomplish things through his weak vessels. That will display his power. For the progress of his gospel. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. It's amazing. That you choose to use weak people like us. Absolutely. Lord, you didn't have to use us at all. You just could have preached your own gospel from the heavens. You could have borne witness yourself directly. So the only reason you use us, Lord, is a privilege to us and so that you can display your power through our weakness. Lord, I pray for every member attending guest person here lord that that area of weakness that they're thinking of right now in their life that you would encourage them through this word that your power is at work lord if they feel stuck in some kind of metaphorical jail and they don't know when the end will come lord let them find themselves singing a hymn of trust in your power, that your divine love has some good in mind. Lord, strengthen them, I pray. Lord. I, even just prophetically, Lord, I just have a burden right now, especially for mothers, Lord, uh, those of little children, and, and also parents of grown children, who for them, Lord, that, that is just the impossible thing. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them faith for calm conversations or in some cases for earth-shaking deliverance, if that's what's needed. I pray, Lord, that you would give faith and trust in your timing, but faith that you are able by your Holy Spirit, give faith right now. Thank you, Lord, that your power came to us and opened our heart. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.